Jeffrey Skilling was a longtime officer of the seventh highest revenue grossing company in America, Enron Corporation. He served as CEO from February until August 2001, when he resigned. He was later convicted of conspiracy, securities fraud, making false representations to auditors, and insider trading. On appeal, he argued that the government prosecuted him under an invalid legal theory and that the jury was biased. There were two questions before the Supreme Court in this case. One, when a presumption of jury prejudice arises because of the widespread community impact and inflammatory publicity of the defendant's alleged conduct, can the government rebut the presumption of prejudice? If so, must the government prove beyond a reasonable doubt that no juror was actually prejudiced? And two, whether the Federal Honest Services Fraud Statute requires the government to prove that the defendant's conduct was intended to achieve private gain rather than to advance the employer's interests, and if not, whether the statute is unconstitutionally vague. The opinion of the court was divided into three parts. Parts one and two cover the facts of the case and answer the first question regarding juror bias. Part three answers the second question before the court regarding the Federal Honest Services Fraud Statute. So I'll be splitting this opinion into two episodes. Part one, which is this episode, will include parts one and two of the opinion regarding jury bias. Part two will cover part three of the opinion regarding the Federal Honest Services Fraud Statute. And that's the part of the opinion that honestly inspired me to read this opinion in the first place because it provides important precedent in understanding a case before the court this term, Percoco v. United States. But first, here's parts one and two of the 2010 opinion of the court in Skilling v. United States. Justice Ginsburg delivered the opinion of the court. In 2001, Enron Corporation, then the seventh highest revenue grossing company in America, crashed into bankruptcy. We consider in this opinion two questions arising from the prosecution of Jeffrey Skilling, a longtime Enron executive, for crimes committed before the corporation's collapse. First, did pretrial publicity and community prejudice prevent Skilling from obtaining a fair trial? Second, did the jury improperly convict Skilling of conspiracy to commit honest services wire fraud? Answering no to both questions, the Fifth Circuit affirmed Skilling's convictions. We conclude in common with the Court of Appeals, that Skilling's fair trial argument fails. Skilling, we hold, did not establish that a presumption of juror prejudice arose or that actual bias infected the jury that tried him. But we disagree with the Fifth Circuit's honest services ruling. In proscribing fraudulent deprivations of the intangible right of honest services, Congress intended at least to reach schemes to defraud involving bribes and kickbacks. Construing the honest services statute to extend beyond that core meaning, we conclude would encounter a vagueness shoal Therefore, we hold that Section 1346 covers only bribery and kickback schemes. Because Skilling's alleged misconduct entailed no bribe or kickback, 
it does not fall within Section 1346's proscription. We therefore affirm in part and vacate in part. Part 1 Founded in 1985, Enron Corporation grew from its headquarters in Houston, Texas, into one of the world's leading energy companies. Skilling launched his career there in 1990 when Kenneth Lay, the company's founder, hired him to head an Enron subsidiary. Skilling steadily rose through the corporation's ranks, serving as president and chief operating officer. And then, beginning in February 2001, as chief executive officer. Six months later, on August 14, 2001, Skilling resigned from Enron. Less than four months after Skilling's departure, Enron spiraled into bankruptcy. The company's stock, which had traded at $90 per share in August 2000, plummeted to pennies per share in late 2001. Attempting to comprehend what caused the corporation's collapse, the U.S. Department of Justice formed an Enron Task Force comprising prosecutors and FBI agents from around the nation. The government's investigation uncovered an elaborate conspiracy to prop up Enron's short-run stock prices by overstating the company's financial well-being. In the years following Enron's bankruptcy, the government prosecuted dozens of Enron employees who participated in the scheme. In time, the government worked its way up the corporation's chain of command. On July 7, 2004, a grand jury indicted Skilling, Lay, and Richard Causey, Enron's former chief accounting officer. These three defendants, the indictment alleged, engaged in a wide-ranging scheme to deceive the investing public, including Enron's shareholders, about the true performance of Enron's businesses by a. manipulating Enron's publicly reported financial results and b. making public statements and representations about Enron's financial performance and results that were false and misleading. Skilling and his co-conspirators, the indictment continued, enriched themselves as a result of the scheme through salary bonuses, grants of stock and stock options, other profits, and prestige. Count one of the indictment charged Skilling with conspiracy to commit securities and wire fraud. In particular, it alleged that Skilling had sought to deprive Enron and its shareholders of the intangible right of his honest services. The indictment further charged Skilling with more than 25 substantive counts of securities fraud, wire fraud, making false representations to Enron's auditors, and insider trading. In November 2004, Skilling moved to transfer the trial to another venue, he contended that hostility toward him in Houston, coupled with extensive pretrial publicity, had poisoned potential jurors. To support this assertion, Skilling, aided by media experts, submitted hundreds of news reports detailing Enron's downfall. He also presented affidavits from the experts he engaged portraying community attitudes in Houston in comparison to other potential venues. 
the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Texas, in accord with rulings in two earlier instituted Enron-related prosecutions, denied the venue transfer motion. Despite isolated incidents of intemperate commentary, the court observed, media coverage had mostly been objective and unemotional, and the facts of the case were neither heinous nor sensational. Moreover, courts had commonly favored effective voir dire to ferret out any juror bias. Pre-trial publicity about the case, the court concluded, did not warrant a presumption that Skilling would be unable to obtain a fair trial in Houston. In the months leading up to the trial, the district court solicited from the parties questions the court might use to screen prospective jurors. Unable to agree on a questionnaire's format and content, Skilling and the government submitted dueling documents. On Venire members' sources of Enron-related news, for example, the government proposed that they tick boxes from a checklist of generic labels such as television, newspaper, and radio. Skilling proposed more probing questions, asking Venire members to list the specific names of their media sources and to report on what stood out in their minds of all the things they had seen or heard or read about Enron. The district court rejected the government's sparer inquiries in favor of Skilling's submission. Skilling's questions were more helpful, the court said, because they were generally open-ended and would allow the potential jurors to give us more meaningful information. The court converted Skilling's submission, with slight modifications, into a 77-question 14-page document that asked prospective jurors about inter alia, their sources of news and exposure to Enron-related publicity, beliefs concerning Enron and what caused its collapse, opinions regarding the defendants and their possible guilt or innocence, and relationships to the company and to anyone affected by its demise. In November 2005, the district court mailed the questionnaire to 400 prospective jurors and received responses from nearly all the addressees. The court granted hardship exemptions to approximately 90 individuals, and the parties, with the court's approval, further winnowed the pool by excusing another 119 for cause hardship, or physical disability. The parties agreed to exclude, in particular, each and every prospective juror who said that a pre-existing opinion about Enron or the defendants would prevent her from impartially considering the evidence at trial. On December 28, 2005, three weeks before the date scheduled for the commencement of trial, Causey pleaded guilty. Skilling's attorneys immediately requested a continuance, and the district court agreed to delay the proceedings until the end of January 2006. In the interim, Skilling renewed his change of venue motion, arguing that the juror questionnaires revealed pervasive bias and that news accounts of Causey's guilty plea further tainted the jury pool. If Houston remained the trial venue, Skilling urged that jurors need to be questioned individually by both the court and counsel concerning their opinions of Enron and publicity issues. The district court again declined to move the trial. Skilling, the court concluded, still had not established 
that pretrial publicity and or community prejudice raised a presumption of inherent jury prejudice. The questionnaires and voir dire, the court observed, provided safeguards adequate to ensure an impartial jury. In denying Skilling's request for attorney-led voir dire, the court said that in 17 years on the bench, quote, I've found I get more forthcoming responses from potential jurors than the lawyers on either side. I don't know whether people are suspicious of lawyers, but I think if I asked a person a question, I will get a candid response much easier than if a lawyer asked the question, unquote. But the court promised to give counsel an opportunity to ask follow-up questions, and it agreed that Venire members should be examined individually about pre-trial publicity. The court also allotted the defendants jointly 14 peremptory challenges, two more than the standard number prescribed by Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure 24B2 and C4B. Voir dire began on January 30, 2006. The district court first emphasized to the Venire the importance of impartiality and explained the presumption of innocence and the government's burden of proof. The trial, the court next instructed, was not a forum to seek vengeance against Enron's former officers or to provide remedies for its victims. The bottom line, the court stressed, is that we want jurors who will faithfully, conscientiously, and impartially serve if selected. In response to the court's query whether any prospective juror questioned her ability to adhere to these instructions, two individuals indicated that they could not be fair. They were therefore excused for cause. After questioning the Venire as a group, the district court brought prospective jurors one by one to the bench for individual examination. Although the questions varied, the process generally tracked the following format. The court asked about exposure to Enron-related news and the content of any stories that stood out in the prospective juror's mind. Next, the court honed in on questionnaire answers that raised a red flag, signaling possible bias. The court then permitted each side to pose follow-up questions. Finally, after the Venire member stepped away, the court entertained and ruled on challenges for cause. In all, the court granted one of the government's for-cause challenges and denied four. It granted three of the defendant's challenges and denied six. The parties agreed to excuse three additional jurors for cause and one for hardship. By the end of the day, the court had qualified 38 prospective jurors, a number sufficient allowing for peremptory challenges to impanel 12 jurors and four alternates. Before the jury was sworn in, Skilling objected to the seating of six jurors. He did not contend that they were in fact biased. Instead, he urged that he would have used peremptories to exclude them had he not exhausted his supply by striking several Venire members after the court refused to excuse them for cause. The court overruled this objection. After the jurors took their oath, the district court told them they could not discuss the case with anyone or follow media accounts of the proceedings. Each of you, the court explained, needs to be absolutely sure 
that your decisions concerning the facts will be based only on the evidence that you hear and read in this courtroom. Following a four-month trial and nearly five days of deliberation, the jury found Skilling guilty of 19 counts, including the honest services fraud conspiracy charge, and not guilty of nine insider trading counts. The district court sentenced Skilling to 292 months imprisonment, three years supervised release, and $45 million in restitution. On appeal, Skilling raised a host of challenges to his convictions, including the fair trial and honest services arguments he presses here. Regarding the former, the Fifth Circuit initially determined that the volume and negative tone of media coverage generated by Enron's collapse created a presumption of juror prejudice. The court also noted potential prejudice stemming from Causey's guilty plea and from the large number of victims in Houston, from the thousands of Enron employees who lost their jobs and saw their 401k accounts wiped out, to Houstonians who suffered spillover economic effects. The Court of Appeals stated, however, that the presumption of prejudice is rebuttable, and it therefore examined the voir dire to determine whether the district court impaneled an impartial jury. The voir dire was, in the Fifth Circuit's view, proper and thorough. Moreover, the court noted, Skilling had challenged only one seated juror, Juror 11, for cause. Although Juror 11 made some troubling comments about corporate greed, the district court observed his demeanor, listened to his answers, and believed he would make the government prove its case. In sum, the Fifth Circuit found that the government had overcome the presumption of prejudice and that Skilling had not shown that any juror who actually sat was prejudiced against him. The Court of Appeals also rejected Skilling's claim that his conduct did not indicate any conspiracy to commit honest services fraud. The jury was entitled to convict Skilling, the court said, on these elements. Number one, a material breach of a fiduciary duty. Number two, that results in a detriment to the employer, including one occasioned by an employee's decision to withhold material information, i.e. information that he had reason to believe would lead a reasonable employer to change its conduct. The Fifth Circuit did not address Skilling's argument that the Honest Services Statute, if not interpreted to exclude his actions, should be invalidated as unconstitutionally vague. Arguing that the Fifth Circuit erred in its consideration of these claims, Skilling sought relief from this court. We granted certiorari and now affirm in part, vacate in part, and remand for further proceedings. We consider first Skilling's allegation of juror prejudice, and next his honest services argument. Part 2 Pointing to the community passion aroused by Enron's collapse and the vitriolic media treatment aimed at him, Skilling argues that his trial never should have proceeded in Houston. And even if it had been possible to select impartial jurors in Houston, the truncated voir dire did almost nothing to weed out prejudices, he contends. So far from rebutting the presumption of prejudice, 
the record below affirmatively confirmed it. Skilling's fair trial claim thus raises two distinct questions. First, did the district court err by failing to move the trial to a different venue based on a presumption of prejudice? Second, did actual prejudice contaminate Skilling's jury? Section A. 1. The Sixth Amendment secures to criminal defendants the right to trial by an impartial jury. By constitutional design, that trial occurs in the state where the crimes have been committed. Section A. 1. The Sixth Amendment secures to criminal defendants the right to trial by an impartial jury. By constitutional design, that trial occurs in the state where the crimes have been committed. The Constitution's place of trial prescriptions, however, do not impede transfer of the proceeding to a different district at the defendant's request if extraordinary local prejudice will prevent a fair trial, a basic requirement of due process. 2. The theory of our trial system is that the conclusions to be reached in a case will be induced only by evidence and argument in open court, and not by any outside influence, whether of private talk or public print. When does the publicity attending conduct charged as criminal dim prospects that the trier can judge a case as due process requires, impartially, unswayed by outsider influence. Because most cases of consequence garner at least some pre-trial publicity, courts have considered this question in diverse settings. We begin our discussion by addressing the presumption of prejudice from which the Fifth Circuit's analysis in Skilling's case proceeded. The foundation precedent is Rideau v. Louisiana, 1963. Wilbert Rideau robbed a bank in a small Louisiana town, kidnapped three bank employees, and killed one of them. Police interrogated Rideau in jail without counsel present, and obtained his confession. Without informing Rido, no less seeking his consent, the police filmed the interrogation. On three separate occasions, shortly before the trial, a local television station broadcast the film to audiences ranging from 24,000 to 53,000 individuals. Rido moved for a change of venue, arguing that he could not receive a fair trial in the parish where the crime occurred, which had a population of approximately 150,000 people. The trial court denied the motion, and a jury eventually convicted Rido. The Supreme Court of Louisiana upheld the conviction. We reversed. What the people in the community saw on their television sets, we observed, was Rido in jail, flanked by the sheriff and two state troopers, admitting in detail the commission of the robbery, kidnapping, and murder. To the tens of thousands of people who saw and heard it, we explained, the interrogation, in a very real sense, was Rido's trial at which he pleaded guilty. We therefore did not hesitate to hold, without pausing to examine a particularized transcript of the voir dire, that the kangaroo court proceedings trailing the televised confession violated due process.
We followed Rido's lead in two later cases in which media coverage manifestly tainted a criminal prosecution. In Estes v. Texas, 1965, extensive publicity before trial swelled into excessive exposure during preliminary court proceedings as reporters and television crews overran the courtroom and bombarded the community with the sights and sounds of the pre-trial hearing. The media's overzealous reporting efforts, we observed, led to considerable disruption and denied the judicial serenity and calm to which Billy Sol Estes was entitled. Similarly, in Shepard v. Maxwell, 1966, news reporters extensively covered the story of Sam Shepard, who was accused of bludgeoning his pregnant wife to death. Bedlam reigned at the courthouse during the trial, and newsmen took over practically the entire courtroom, thrusting jurors into the role of celebrities. Pre-trial media coverage, which we characterized as months of virulent publicity about Shepard and the murder, did not alone deny due process, we noted. But Shepard's case involved more than heated reporting of pre-trial. We upset the murder conviction because a carnival atmosphere pervaded the trial. In each of these cases, we overturned a conviction obtained in a trial atmosphere that was utterly corrupted by press coverage. Our decisions, however, cannot be made to stand for the proposition that juror exposure to news accounts of the crime alone presumptively deprives the defendant of due process. Prominence does not necessarily produce prejudice, and juror impartiality, we have reiterated, does not require ignorance. A presumption of prejudice, our decisions indicate, attends only the extreme case. 3. Relying on Rido, Estes, and Shepard, Skilling asserts that we need not pause to examine the screening questionnaires or the voir dire before declaring his jury's verdict void. We are not persuaded. Important differences separate Skilling's prosecution from those in which we have presumed juror prejudice. First, we have emphasized in prior decisions the size and characteristics of the community in which the crime occurred. In Rido, for example, we noted that the murder was committed in a parish of only 150,000 residents. Houston, in contrast, is the fourth most populous city in the nation. At the time of Skilling's trial, more than 4.5 million individuals eligible for jury duty resided in the Houston area. Given this large, diverse pool of potential jurors, the suggestion that 12 impartial individuals could not be impaneled is hard to sustain. Second, although news stories about skillings were not kind, they contained no confession or other blatantly prejudicial information of the type readers or viewers could not reasonably be expected to shut from sight. Rido's dramatically staged admission of guilt, for instance, was likely imprinted indelibly in the mind of anyone who watched it. Pre-trial publicity about skilling was less memorable and prejudicial. No evidence of the smoking gun variety invited prejudgment of his culpability. 
Finally, and of prime significance, Skilling's jury acquitted him of nine insider trading counts. Similarly, earlier instituted Enron-related prosecutions yielded no overwhelming victory for the government. In Rido, Estes, and Shepard, in marked contrast, the jury's verdict did not undermine in any way the supposition of juror bias. It would be odd for an appellate court to presume prejudice in a case in which jurors' actions run counter to that presumption. 4. Skilling's trial, in short, shares little in common with those in which we approved a presumption of juror prejudice. The Fifth Circuit reached the opposite conclusion, based primarily on the magnitude and negative tone of media attention directed at Enron. But pre-trial publicity, even pervasive, adverse publicity, does not inevitably lead to an unfair trial. In this case, as just noted, news stories about Enron did not present the kind of vivid, unforgettable information we have recognized as particularly likely to produce prejudice. And Houston's size and diversity diluted the media's impact. Nor did Enron's sheer number of victims trigger a presumption of prejudice, although the widespread community impact necessitated careful identification and inspection of prospective jurors' connections to Enron, the extensive screening questionnaire and follow-up voir dire were well-suited to that task. And hindsight shows the efficacy of these devices. As we discussed, jurors' links to Enron were either non-existent or attenuated. Finally, although Kazi's well-publicized decision to plead guilty shortly before trial created a danger of juror prejudice, the district court took appropriate steps to reduce that risk. The court delayed the proceedings by two weeks, lessening the immediacy of that development. And during voir dire, the court asked about prospective jurors' exposure to recent publicity, including news regarding Causey. Only two Venire members recalled the plea. Neither mentioned Causey by name, and neither ultimately served on Skilling's jury. Although publicity about a co-defendant's guilty plea calls for inquiry to guard against actual prejudice, it does not ordinarily, and we are satisfied it did not hear, warrant an automatic presumption of prejudice. Persuaded that no presumption arose, we conclude that the district court in declining to order a venue change, did not exceed constitutional limitations. Section B. We next consider whether actual prejudice infected Skilling's jury. Voir dire, Skilling asserts, did not adequately detect and diffuse juror bias. The record affirmatively confirms prejudice, he maintains, because several seated jurors prejudiced his guilt. We disagree with Skilling's characterization of the voir dire and the jurors selected through it. 1. No hard and fast formula dictates the necessary depth or breadth of voir dire. Jury selection, we have repeatedly emphasized, is particularly within the province of the trial judge. When pre-trial publicity is at issue, primary reliance on the judgment of the trial court makes especially good sense because the judge sits in the locale where the publicity is said to have had its effect and may base her evaluation on her own perception of the depth 
and extent of news stories that might influence a juror. Appellate courts making after-the-fact assessments of the media's impact on jurors should be mindful that their judgments lack the on-the-spot comprehension of the situation possessed by trial judges. Reviewing courts are properly resistant to second-guessing the trial judge's estimation of a juror's impartiality, for that judge's appraisal is ordinarily influenced by a host of factors impossible to capture fully in the record. Among them, the prospective juror's inflection, sincerity, demeanor, candor, body language, and apprehension of duty. In contrast to the cold transcript received by the appellate court, the in-the-moment voir dire affords the trial court a more intimate and immediate basis for assessing a venire member's fitness for jury service. We consider the adequacy of jury selection in Skilling's case, therefore, attentive to the respect due to district court determinations of juror impartiality and of the measures necessary to ensure that impartiality. 2. Skilling deems the voir dire insufficient because, he argues, jury selection lasted just five hours. Most of the court's questions were conclusory, high-level, and failed adequately to probe jurors' true feelings, and the court consistently took prospective jurors at their word once they claimed they could be fair, no matter what other indications of bias were present. Our review of the record, however, yields a different appraisal. As noted, the district court initially screened Venire members by eliciting their responses to a comprehensive questionnaire drafted in large part by Skilling. That survey helped to identify prospective jurors excusable for cause and served as a springboard for further questions put to remaining members of the array. Voir dire thus was, in the court's words, the culmination of a lengthy process. In other Enron-related prosecutions, we note, district courts, after inspecting Venire members' responses to questionnaires, completed the jury selection process within one day. The district court conducted voir dire, moreover, aware of the greater-than-normal need due to pre-trial publicity to ensure against jury bias. At Skilling's urging, the court examined each prospective juror individually, thus preventing the spread of any prejudicial information to other Venire members. To encourage candor, the court repeatedly admonished that there were no right and wrong answers to the questions. The court denied Skilling's request for an attorney-led voir dire because, in its experience, potential jurors were more forthcoming when the court, rather than counsel, asked the question. The parties, however, were accorded an opportunity to ask follow-up questions of every prospective juror brought to the bench for colloquy. Skilling's counsel declined to ask anything of more than half of the Venire members questioned individually, including eight eventually selected for the jury, because he explained, the court and other counsel have covered everything he wanted to know. Inspection of the questionnaires and voir dire of the individuals who actually served as jurors satisfies us that, notwithstanding the flaws skilling lists, the selection process successfully secured jurors who were largely untouched by Enron's collapse. Eleven of the seated jurors and alternates reported no connection at all to Enron, while all other jurors reported, at most, an insubstantial link. 
As for pretrial publicity, 14 jurors and alternates specifically stated that they had paid scant attention to Enron-related news. The remaining two jurors indicated that nothing in the news influenced their opinions about skilling. The questionnaires confirmed that whatever community prejudice existed in Houston generally, skilling's jurors were not under its sway. Although many expressed sympathy for victims of Enron's bankruptcy and speculated that greed contributed to the corporation's collapse, these sentiments did not translate into animus toward skilling. When asked whether they had an opinion about Jeffrey Skilling, none of the seated jurors and alternates checked the yes box. And in response to the question whether any opinion they may have formed regarding Enron or Skilling would prevent their impartial consideration of the evidence at trial, every juror, despite options to mark yes or unsure, instead checked no. The district court, Skilling asserts, should not have accepted at face value jurors' promises of fairness. Skilling points out, We found actual prejudice despite jurors' assurances that they could be impartial. Justice Sotomayor, in turn, repeatedly relies on Irvin, which she regards as closely analogous to this case. We disagree with that characterization of Irvin. The facts of Irvin are worlds apart from those presented here. Leslie Irvin stood accused of a brutal murder and robbery spree in a small rural community. In the months before Irvin's trial, a barrage of publicity was unleashed against him, including reports of his confessions to the slayings and robberies. The court's description of the media coverage in Irvin reveals why the dissent's best case is not an apt comparison. Quote, Stories reveal the details of Irvin's background, including a reference to crimes committed when a juvenile, his convictions for arson almost 20 years previously, for burglary and by a court-martial on AWOL charges during the war. He was accused of being a parole violator. The headlines announced his police lineup identification that he faced a lie detector test, had been placed at the scene of the crime, and that the six murders were solved, but he refused to confess. Finally, they announced Irvin's confession to the six murders and the fact of his indictment of four of them in Indiana. They reported Irvin's offer to plead guilty if promised a 99-year sentence, but also the determination, on the other hand, of the prosecutor to secure the death penalty, and that Irvin had confessed to 24 burglaries. One story dramatically relayed the promise of a sheriff to devote his life to securing Irvin's execution. Another characterized Irvin as remorseless and without conscience, but also as having been found sane by a court-appointed panel of doctors. In many of the stories, Irvin was described as the confessed slayer of six, a parole violator, and fraudulent check artist. Irvin's court-appointed counsel was quoted as having received much criticism over being Irvin's counsel, and it was pointed out, by way of excusing the attorney, that he would be subject to disbarment should he refuse to represent Irvin. On the day before the trial, the newspapers carried the story that Irvin had orally admitted to the murder of one victim 
as well as the robbery murder of a second individual, the murder of a third individual, and the slaughter of three members of a different family. Newspapers in which these stories appeared were delivered regularly to 95% of the dwellings in the county where the trial occurred, which had a population of only 30,000. Radio and TV stations, which likewise blanketed that county, also carried extensive newscasts covering the same incidents. Reviewing Irvin's fair trial claim, this court noted that the pattern of deep and bitter prejudice in the community was clearly reflected in the sum total of the voir dire. 370 prospective jurors, or almost 90% of those examined on the point, entertained some option as to guilt, and 8 out of the 12 jurors thought Irvin was guilty. Although these jurors declared they could be impartial, we held that with his life at stake, it is not requiring too much that Irvin be tried in an atmosphere undisturbed by so huge a wave of public passion and by a jury other than one in which two-thirds of the members admit, before hearing any testimony, to possessing a belief in his guilt. In this case, as noted, news stories about Enron contained nothing resembling the horrifying information rife in reports about Irvin's rampage of robberies and murders. Of key importance, Houston shares little in common with the rural community in which Irvin's trial proceeded, and circulation figures for Houston media sources were far lower than the 95% saturation level recorded in Irvin. Skilling's seated jurors, moreover, exhibited nothing like the display of bias shown in Irvin. In light of these large differences, the district court had far less reason than did the trial court in Irvin to discredit jurors' promises of fairness. The district court, moreover, did not simply take Venire members who proclaimed their impartiality at their word. As noted, all of Skilling's jurors had already affirmed on their questionnaires that they would have no trouble basing a verdict only on the evidence at trial. Nevertheless, the court followed up with each individually to uncover concealed bias. This face-to-face opportunity to gauge demeanor and credibility, coupled with information from the questionnaires regarding jurors' backgrounds, opinions, and sources of news, gave the court a sturdy foundation to assess fitness for jury service. The jury's not guilty verdict on nine insider trading counts after nearly five days of deliberation, meanwhile, suggests the court's assessments were accurate. Skilling, we conclude, failed to show that his voir dire fell short of constitutional requirements. 3. Skilling also singles out several jurors in particular and contends they were openly biased. In reviewing claims of this type, the deference due to district courts is at its pinnacle. A trial court's findings of juror impartiality may be overturned only for manifest error. Skilling, moreover, unsuccessfully challenged only one of the seated jurors for cause, strong evidence that he was convinced the other jurors were not biased and had not formed any opinions as to his guilt. With these considerations in mind, 
we turn to Skilling's specific allegations of juror partiality. Skilling contends that juror 11, the only seated juror he challenged for cause, expressed the most obvious bias. Juror 11 stated that greed on Enron's part triggered the company's bankruptcy and that corporate executives, driven by avarice, walk a line that stretches sometimes the legality of something. But, as the Fifth Circuit accurately summarized, Juror 11 had no idea whether Skilling had crossed that line, and he didn't say that every CEO is probably a crook. He also asserted that he could be fair and require the government to prove its case, that he did not believe everything he read in the paper, that he did not get into the details of the Enron coverage, that he did not watch television, and that Enron was old news. Despite his criticism of greed, Juror 11 remarked that Skilling earned his salary and said he would have no problem telling his co-worker who had lost 401k funds due to Enron's collapse, that the jury voted to acquit if that scenario came to pass. The district court, noting that it had looked Juror 11 in the eye and heard all his answers, found his assertions of impartiality credible. We agree with the Court of Appeals that the express finding that Juror 11 was fair is not reversible error. Skilling also objected at trial to the seating of six specific jurors, whom he said he would have excluded had he not already exhausted his peremptory challenges. Juror 20, he observes, said she was angry about Enron's collapse and that she too had been forced to forfeit her own 401k funds to survive layoffs. But Juror 20 made clear during voir dire that she did not personally blame Skilling for the loss of her retirement account. Having not paid much attention to Enron-related news, she quite honestly did not have enough information to know whether Skilling was probably guilty, and she thought she could be fair and impartial. In light of these answers, the district court did not commit manifest error in finding Juror 20 fit for jury service. The same is true of Juror 63, who, Skilling points out, wrote on her questionnaire that Skilling probably knew he was breaking the law. During voir dire, however, Juror 63 insisted that she did not really have an opinion about Skilling's guilt either way. She did not know what she was thinking when she completed the questionnaire, but she absolutely presumed Skilling innocent and confirmed her understanding that the government would have to prove his guilt. In response to follow-up questions from Skilling's counsel, she again stated she would not presume that Skilling violated any laws and could absolutely give her word that she could be fair. Jurors, we have recognized, cannot be expected invariably to express themselves carefully or even consistently. From where we sit, we cannot conclude that Juror 63 was biased. The four remaining jurors Skilling said he would have excluded with extra peremptory strikes exhibited no sign of prejudice we can discern. Skilling's counsel declined to ask follow-up questions of any of these jurors and indeed told Juror 84 He had nothing to ask because she gave all the right answers. Whatever Skilling's reasons for wanting to strike these four individuals from his jury, 
he cannot credibly assert they displayed a disqualifying bias. In sum, Skilling failed to establish that a presumption of prejudice arose or that actual bias infected the jury that tried him. Jurors, the trial court correctly comprehended, need not enter the box with empty heads in order to determine the facts impartially. It is sufficient if the jurors can lay aside their impressions or opinions and render a verdict based on the evidence presented in court. Taking account of the full record, rather than incomplete exchanges selectively culled from it, we find no cause to upset the lower court's judgment that Skilling's jury met that measure. We therefore affirm the Fifth Circuit's ruling that Skilling received a fair trial. We've come to the end of part one of this opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.